It's Jackie Fallick here, and I'm back with FM Forward, a podcast about the rapidly changing landscape of the FM and how to remain on top of your game. Last season, I talked about risk and the many ways it can impact your organization. This season is all about the pandemic and how it's reshaped business, perhaps forever. We'll explore what companies really need to function at their highest levels while keeping everyone safe. Through discussions with experts, we'll guide you toward what matters most. What we're talking about today is feedback. And since feedback at its core is intended to help improve performance for both the individual and the company, we're going to unpack what really drives performance by uncovering how to make it personal without you taking it personally. I'm your host, Jackie Fowler, and this is FM Forward. We could all stand to take a break from COVID and the break we are going to take will transport you on a journey from dread to joy. Joe Hirsch is our coach and captain on this ride, bringing his experience in behavioral science, education, performance, and empowerment to Team U. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Jackie, how you doing? I'm super, thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, as you know from our prep session, I have lined up a slew of questions, so I'm gonna dive <laughs> right in. Yeah, we're going to marathon it. Absolutely. We have so much to share. Um, so let's start with what made you want to write a book about feedback? So uh, it's so great to be with all my friends who we had the opportunity to learn together with at FM Forward just a few weeks ago, still on a high from those interactions. And greetings to everyone else out there in the FM community listening today. So, so the book I wrote um, a couple of years ago is called The Feedback Fix. And I wrote it, Jackie, because I was pretty bad at getting feedback. You know, coming from an education background, I was in the business of giving a lot of feedback. Most of it was okay. Some of the times I think I did a better than average job, but uh, I would say more, of, more times than not, it was not great. And, and certainly when it came time to receive that feedback, there was a certain sense of dread, opposition, and defiance that factored into those conversations. And for a long time, I became almost protective of my, of my own personal ego myself um, when it came to those conversations. And I would have a shield like I was going into some battle which the research actually shows is true psychologically. Whenever we have these encounters, there is almost a threat response that is aroused um, deep in our neuropsychology. And so this idea of going to war whenever you have these conversations is apt. And for a long time, I, I was not aware of how I really was showing up to people. And, and eventually it caught up with me. And as I spoke about at TED, this was something that that cost me friends, it cost me relationships, it, it almost cost me my job. And, and it took a very, very brave and bold move from a good friend of mine to, to really wake me up to this reality that I wasn't aware of how I was showing up to others. And after really looking at myself and looking at how I related to feedback, I started to understand that it doesn't have to be a source of fear. 
feedback can be a source of joy. It can actually unlock what? the very best parts of ourselves. It can make us the very best version of ourselves. And to do that, we have to understand how to unlock that capacity for, for discovery, for greatness. And I started to embark on a journey really of self-discovery, but also going through the research and going through um, really a solid, rigorous study of how do people take and grow from feedback? What are the barriers that get in the way of these conversations? What are the results of taking a forward-looking approach uh, to the whole conversation? And instead of looking back, to look out at the ever-changing future. And the result was the feedback fix. And I'm proud that it's made a dent in people's lives. I continue to hear from people about how that small but powerful change in orientation from looking back at a past that we can't change to out towards a future that people can just changes the dynamic of these conversations. It oh, literally wakes us up to a whole new version of who we can be. I can imagine because one tends to focus on regret, what they wish that they had done, and one is so filled with positive connotations about what can be created moving forward. So um, the feedback fix, that is going in our resource guide, I can tell you right now. I, I love how you got started with it. So you've mentioned your feeling of trepidation around receiving feedback and even giving it. Why do you think so many of us feel it's necessary to do this armor thing? Have we been trained in it? Because I, I can think of instances where, yep, I'm starting to suit up for the fight. I'm preparing to defend myself. I feel under attack, right? Just like you said, we're at war. You know, how did it come to this? I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. people intended it to be this way. No, the, the, the short history of feedback is that it really was actually started in, in government affairs and it was done as a way to track uh, the performance of government employees and eventually became adopted at a corporate level and went through many different variations from rank and yank uh, to the more holistic view of people and feedback that we now have today. But I think that what really is a, is a powerful barrier for, for most people cuts deep on a neuropsychological level. And there's really three reasons uh, why people feel that feedback is tough. It's tough, to, it's tough to digest, it's also tough to share. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why it's hard for us to receive it starts with a sense of threat uh, that, that is aroused whenever we have these conversations. Um, deep inside the human brain, um, there's a hormone cortisol, uh, which is released every single time uh, our threat arousal is stimulated. And it goes back to ancient times, you know, when we were, you know, hunters and gatherers. And, you know, if we ever felt that our safety was questioned or that our security was somehow going to be compromised. So we were thrown into a state of high alert. And that state of high alert provoked and propelled by stress inducing hormones uh, allowed us to survive. But today it actually inhibits us on many different levels. Whenever our brains are triggered with a question like, can I give you some feedback? And that threat arousal goes wild, we start to feel a sense of dread. And that sense of dread really originates from a, a, a deep-seated neurological sense um, 
that we suddenly are not safe. Mm -hmm. And part of that has to do with the constraining uh, blood flow that goes to the brain. Um, we, we see from fMRI scans that the human brain, the parts of it that are responsible for creativity and decision-making, those parts of the brain actually go dark. Uh, whenever we feel like our safety is challenged, our security is compromised. And for that reason, we do a lot of stupid things whenever we feel like our safety is questioned. Uh, we become unusually defiant. We become oppositional. We become hostile. We do what we think it takes to survive. And it's and, pretty hard to learn in the dark. Yes, yes. And when we are not at our best, we can't become our best. And certainly when we are brought back to a time in the past when we weren't at our best, we sense uh, that feeling of helplessness all over again. And that's really the other piece of this. It's not just a feeling of stress and threat awareness. It's a feeling of being incapable of changing anything. And that feeling of learned helplessness, of of not being able to change what, uh, what is in front of us, mm -hmm. to not be able to control events uh, that now are behind us. That feeling is debilitating and crushing. And when feedback focuses on a past that we can't change anymore, all of a sudden that sense of helplessness is stronger and more powerful than ever before. So for really both of those reasons, the feeling of stress that floods our neural pathways, the feeling of helplessness and the emotional debilitation that comes with it. We just don't like it very much. And I'm right there with you. Other factors, you know, like the, the bias, the, the judgment um, that, that creeps in. And there's, it's a toxic mess when you look uh, at, at what traditional feedback has become. That's why people don't like getting it. And that's why managers don't like giving it. And a feeling of isolation. So I'm wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded that you said joy, that we can transform this to a place where it is joyful to receive it. So I'm not there yet, Joe. <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to talk to me about how you go about incentivizing someone to welcome and receiving it. Joy sounds wonderful to me, but what else is there? So let's take it as a process. So on one end of the spectrum, you've got fear and loathing, and that's a very, it's a very unhappy place to be. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have joy and growth and self-awareness. And to get from one end of the spectrum to the other takes a healthy mix of, on the part of the leader giving this feedback, of curiosity and humility, and on the part of the receiver, openness and a little bit of bravery. So why don't we start with the, with the leader, since leaders are the ones who most often find themselves in the position of giving feedback. And then we'll talk about the receiver and what receivers can do as well to help you know, ease that transition for themselves because feedback is a two-way conversation. It's a, it's a partnership. And that's much of what my work focuses on, a partnership approach to giving feedback that involves both people. And so you really have to look at both the giver, because that's really where it originates, but also the receiver, uh, because that's where it lands. So why don't we take the, the giver first? And, and with the giver, the, the reason why 
according to research, uh, most managers dislike giving feedback is because they don't like rocking the boat. They, they know what it's like to get negative feedback themselves, and they don't want to impose that feeling on others. You know, unless they're really unpleasant human beings, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to cause discord um, and chaos in the workplace. They want to be liked, and they're afraid of giving feedback. So there's a, a real reluctance on the part of managers to give feedback, especially because many managers have found themselves in this role because of technical skill and not necessarily people savvy. Oh, that's that's very interesting, Joe. And you know, if they don't have that training behind them and they know that it's expected of them, you can find lots of information out there that says be kind of rotten to people. Yeah. You know, be hard and decisive and frequent and you know in the moment and flex your muscles it sounds like that's bad advice so i'm interested in hearing a kinder gentler process that results in better performance and i I, think you're going to give it to me i i think the the secret with feedback is that you can never force a change you really can only provoke an insight provoke an insight Now, granted, you can force changes in the sense you can fire people. Um, That's that's an unpleasant way to to think about the situation. And sometimes, you know, to be perfectly frank, it does come to that. You know, sometimes difficult decisions have to be made. But long before those decisions are reached, there are multiple opportunities to help people become better versions of themselves, to discover a better state of work, a better state of being. And that's where a partnership approach is critical because leaders don't have the necessarily the bandwidth to have these kinds of conversations. Feedback done well is an art and it's, it's very difficult to expect someone, especially um, a leader who hasn't been trained, to, to have an intuitive sense of how to have these conversations. So part of what I suggest to people is relinquish some of your power. Don't view yourself as the problem solver. View yourself as the problem exposer. And to do that, uh, it takes a powerful mindset shift in how you view this conversation. Are you there to force a change or are you there to provoke an insight? I like to call this the difference between window gazing and mirror holding, okay? You and I, Jackie, could be staring out a window trying to describe the scene that's in front of us. And we can have totally different views, right? We're looking out, uh, let's say from the office window out onto the street, say it's Milk Street in Boston, and you see a bustling thoroughfare, lots of people going on, lots of activity, it's lunchtime, people are eating outside, it's beautiful, they're six feet apart, it's wonderful, life is good. And I look at it and I say, gosh, look at the crowds, look at the congestion, look at the, look at the potential for spreading of COVID. You know, we just have totally different views about the same exact picture. Now, that's perfectly fine when you and I are two equals looking at the same picture, but when it comes to performance, it's anything but equal. There's a hierarchy. And what the power resides with the person doing the gazing, the boss, the leader. And so if I'm looking at your performance and I'm telling you what I see, then it's really just my view that matters because I'm the person with the power. Now, with that power comes a tremendous responsibility and And frankly, oftentimes, a lot of leaders aren't ready for that responsibility. They don't have the tools, they don't have the savvy, they don't have the confidence to hold those conversations. And so I suggest shifting the whole focus of the conversation from tell and sell 
to listen and learn. And when you're a mirror holder, you do exactly that. It's no longer about your view. And if I'm looking at a situation and, and I'm telling you what I see, it's all about what I see. It's not about what you know. Mm -hmm. But as a mirror holder, my job is simply to hold that mirror up to you and allow you to see the picture more clearly for yourself. My view doesn't matter. It's diminished. It's enlarging your view. That's the goal here. And when we act as mirror holders and we start to take an approach of curiosity and humility, right? We limit our own power. We create more uh, curiosity. We ask more questions. We engage in conversation. We can talk about mechanics of how that works. Then all of a sudden, two things happen. Number one, leaders relieve themselves of this terrible burden of having to solve problems that they may not even be aware of because leaders are not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They only know what they know. And this gives them the chance to listen and let more information flow to them from the person that's closest to the action, the person on the other end of that conversation. The other thing that's gonna happen is that it's gonna start to give permission to the receiver to start feeling comfortable with feedback and to start asking for it himself or herself. Mm. And that permission starts with the leader, but flows to the receiver, to the employee. And regardless of where you sit on this conversation, on the giving side or on the receiving end, knowing that feedback is something that is partner-driven, that is focused on strengths, skills, and future growth, that is not going to look back at a past that can't be changed, but instead focuses on a future that still can, that not only diminishes a lot of that threat awareness that we talked about before, but it also does what feedback is supposed to do, builds relationships and trust. Because we don't listen to people who we don't like or trust. But if we have a sense that this person is there to support me, he or she cares about my growth and development, he or she is actually taking an interest in, in me, in what I know and what I can add to this conversation, rather than simply rattling off a list of action items that need to be addressed by our next conversation or next quarter, changes the whole dynamic of the conversation. And that's where the joy starts to come in because you begin to realize that it truly is a gift. This ability to now see yourself differently through the eyes of others is something that when done well and when delivered with care and candor is one of the most powerful life-changing experiences we can ever have. It literally wakes us up to a version of who we are and who we are becoming. It's, uh, it's fascinating to me. I, I hear you saying that by transitioning and building that relationship to the person receiving the feedback, asking for it, you're also giving them control. And control makes people's stress hormone diminish, right? Yeah. Because they feel as yeah. if they have a say in what happens instead of having something happen to them, right? Yes. Being a good leader, and really just being a good person, is about what you do for others, not to others. And as leaders, the greatest thing we can do for our people 
is to hold the mirror and allow them to see themselves in their work in a whole new way. And if you're, if you're not a leader, if you're an employee, uh, you, still, you still are a leader in the sense that leaders are people who have followers. And if you lead by your example within your team, if you're a good colleague to others, you are demonstrating qualities of leadership. And every one of us has the ability to model these behaviors. And even if you don't feel like you're necessarily getting feedback that's activating this greater sense of self, you still have the opportunity through your own interactions with others and your own feedback conversations with people on your team to demonstrate the power and the potential of this conversation. A conversation that looks out instead of looking back, a conversation that focuses on strengths and making people feel like more of themselves rather than weaknesses and making people feel like less of themselves. I love it. So you've sold me, now I wanna know, what are the steps or the methodology for becoming a really skilled feedback giver? Where do I start? Do I have to study other people that are really good at it? You know, are there simple steps that I can take? I think simple is the, the easiest road to change. And so all that I share with others, not only is research backed, but really has been distilled for, for managers, for leaders at all levels, uh, regardless of their um, advanced training, regardless of uh, development opportunities they've received. It really starts with a simple question of, when you're going into a conversation like this, so tell me about something that's been going great for you recently, right? Focus on this moment of peak, this summit, if you will, of performance. And it could be something that happened as recently as last project, last, last quarter, even last week. And, and again, keeping with this, this approach of listen and learn and exercising your curiosity and your humility. So, so listen, <laughs> listen to what they tell you. And, and it could surprise you uh, because I've had so many conversations with, with, with leaders and these are leaders at all levels from, from mid-level managers all the way up to executives, the highest levels of their organizations. And all of them are surprised by what they didn't know. <laughs> and it, it happens because so much of work happens outside uh, of their view. And when they start listening to people and they start telling them, you know, well, this is what actually was, was wonderful for me. This is when I felt alive at work. This is when I felt really successful. It not only activates, activates that sense of strength and success uh, in the person who's talking, the, the feedback, um, the feedback individual is with the spotlight trained on him or her, but it's also revelatory. And it really opens up a whole new way of understanding for the, for the manager, for the leader. And once you start to hear that moment of peak, that summit, so dig a little more and ask the individual, okay, so that's amazing. That's wonderful. That sounds unbelievable. But tell me what or who helped make that possible. I mean, help me understand a little bit more who was by your side. Because even when we do great work, we rarely do it all by ourselves. Yep. And, and there must have been someone or something, uh, a colleague, uh, maybe it was the project you were on. Maybe it was something that I did or maybe I didn't do. Uh, 
Maybe it was me getting out of the way, right? So what, what happened that allowed you to feel this moment of success? And again, listen, learn, pay attention to the, to the body language, pay attention to the cues. Again, this isn't, this isn't something that has to be um, explored on a super deep level. It really just comes down to being a very good observer of human, of human behavior, um, uh, of human performance, and being humble enough to realize that you don't have all the answers and that if you are a little bit more of a noticer, you might pick up on things that you never saw or, or felt before as the leader. And so that's, yeah. that, let me ask you this, because I find this part of it really interesting and I wanna make sure our listeners don't think that they need to have some kind of a psychology degree here. Like human beings are actually really good when they pay attention to picking up on what body language is telling them. Are they not? Can you explain a little? Yeah, we're very bad at knowing how we show up to others. We have about 90% of us, most of us, um, are usually unaware uh, on some level, varying degrees of course, of how we show up to other people. But we're very good at noticing how others are showing up to us, right? I can tell if you're upset at me just by looking at your face. I can tell if you're engaged, if you're scrolling through your feed, or if you're making eye contact. I can tell if you're put off at me by the way your, your uh, cadence of your voice sounds, by how your arms are situated, um, by the shortness of your breath. There's a lot of cues that we instinctively pick up on as human beings. And we may not have all the verbiage for that, and we may not know all the psychological effects that drive it, but we do understand on a basic human level, if people are happy or sad, engaged or bored, scared or elated. And this is where being a noticer comes in. And so working on noticing others more, seeing others more in these conversations and not going into them with a preconceived agenda of what you're going to say and what you think is going to happen next powers this kind of free-flowing exchange where people feel comfortable really telling you about what's going on without fear of repercussion. It doesn't mean that there are no metrics or action items or um, deliverables. I am very much in favor of that. And my approach is, is very focused on that. We can get into that as well. But at the core, it's about a mindset change of I am not here to solve your problem. I am here to help you discover your own solution. Because ultimately, you are closest to the action. And even if I try to force changes on you, it doesn't mean that anything will actually change. You, as the receiver, are the one who has to be in complete control of that. You made that point before about how when we feel like we're in control, we're less stressed and we feel more emboldened to act. And that's exactly what happens whenever uh, we feel a sense of autonomy, we feel a sense of control, that sense of efficacy. Psychologists talk about uh, this being a very powerful motivator, more powerful than any kind of rewards, tangible rewards, is the sense of what I'm doing matters, I matter, and I know that this work matters to other people. And that sense of efficacy is powered when you don't tell people what to do, 
but instead you ask them for their own suggestions and impressions. You become a learn-it-all instead of a know-it-all. Ah, I love that, a learn-it-all. So in this process of learning it all, tell me, do they segue in their own conversations in, you know, I'm exploring what I loved about this. Do I start to say things like, as compared to when I didn't feel this way? Yeah. So how do we get to things that maybe aren't good for the individual and or the company in this type of approach? Yeah. So the kinds of things that we were just describing are great for talking about sort of your long range goals, your big picture things, and as a way to sort of support the, the, the performance management practices, the appraisal practices that are already in place within organizations. Uh, you're creating much more of a user focused approach with that, where they're active in that conversation. But you hit, you hit it right on the head. There are definitely times when it's not about long range growth and goals, it's about right now solutions. Something's not working at work. And I, as the leader, need to tell you about it. So uh, here's where, again, leaders, I, I sense retreat on this issue. Um, and very often uh, they, they offer up uh, dodging and decoys, otherwise known as a prey sandwich, where <laughs> they will, they'll walk all around the issue without attacking it head on and they'll disguise it and they'll dodge it. Uh, and, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with praise. I think quite the contrary, praise is a powerful motivator and, and a very, very useful tool in, in a leader's arsenal. The but problem- This sounds confusing. It, it is, it's not the praise, it's the sandwich, right? Yeah. Because according to research, when I, when I package my critical message between two compliments or two pieces of praise, you're only really focusing on the middle. Uh, excuse me, the, the ends of the sandwich, not the middle. You're only listening to the parts that are either land first or lands last, but you miss what comes in the middle. Uh, that's called the recency effect. You only focus on what happened most recently, the message you just heard. Okay. There's also the whole idea of if I open up, like if I say, Jackie, you're one of my top performers. Um, you're a valued member of the team, but I want to tell you about something that happened earlier today. And then I tell you about how you talked over someone at a meeting, or you said something unkind, or you were disparaging to a client in a client meeting. And then I finish and I say, but Jackie, you're like, you're an amazing person. I know now they've had this talk, everything's gonna be fine. Just wanted to put it out there for you to know about, right? So I walk away from the conversation thinking, okay, message delivered, mission accomplished. I told her she's great. I, I told her how much I like her. I also told her that there was a problem and we're good. And we're not, because, because you didn't hear what needed to be heard. If anything, even if you heard the part about, uh, about something that happened earlier today, it's like blah, 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 right? Lost totally in between those two pieces. And you also might lose some respect for me, according to science as well. Um, researchers have detected a, a loss of trust that emerges when leaders give praise sandwiches. Uh, it's because they're viewed as a little more manipulative, a little more devious, that they can't necessarily be trusted because if they really had, if they really felt like they had a trusting relationship with the subordinate, with the employee, they could just come right out and say it. Hey, we have a great relationship. We trust each other. And because we trust each other and because I care about you, I wanted to tell you about something that happened earlier. That's a much more trusting approach than this whole like dodge and decoy of, 
prey sandwiching and hoping you don't really notice the critical thing that I'm about to say. So I, I, I advocate for a different approach. If the sandwich is, uh, is gonna lead to these hard feelings and is not really gonna produce positive change and becomes confusing, um, I say, let's attack it head on. Let's be candid, let's be caring, let's be collaborative. So if a sandwich isn't good, let's try a wrap. And, and wrap stands for, uh, it's a four part, um, four part process, again, super simple, uh, that, I, that I tell people um, to try if they're, if they're a little bit reluctant to have these kinds of real time conversations about work with people. And, and the wrap is pretty straightforward. You talk about what's happening and where it's happening, that's the W, the reason for why you wanna have this conversation, the affect, the, the feelings that it's causing you, the, the person who's giving this conversation, uh, giving the feedback, and then P, prompt, um, asking the receiver for what he or she would do next. And it's super powerful, uh, even though it's a very, you know, it's a simple process. Because when you talk about what's happening and where it's happening, you immediately give it an address. You, you label the problem. There's no wondering of, well, gosh, what's he going to say next? Like if, if I just go to you and I say, Jackie, can I give you some feedback? We're back to where we were before, right? We're back to the toxic stress. We're back to the fear, the loathing, the I don't know what's about to happen. My status is challenged. My safety is questioned. And now I'm a mess. Yep. But if I tell you, hey, Jackie, can we talk about what happened at the meeting earlier today? At least you know that it's focused on that meeting that happened earlier today. And it's not about some longstanding problem. It's not about um, your interaction um, with me. It's not about the way you submit expense reports. It's not about your arrival. It's not about how well you, you use Zoom. It's, it's really just about that. And it doesn't eliminate all the stress, but it definitely reduces it. And then when you talk about the reason for why you're having these conversations, you're, you're playing into people's need to know. If this is all about giving people a sense of control, a sense of, um, of active partnership, then they have to understand where you're coming from. Far from being condescending, it actually, it's quite welcoming. It's like when you're on an airplane and you're grounded and you have no idea why, and it just, it's going, I mean, not that people are traveling by plane much these days, but I, I can remember often just wanting to know, why are we still on the tarmac? You know, we were supposed to take off 20 minutes ago and your mind starts racing and racing. And when the, when the captain gets on the intercom and says, I just wanted to let you guys know that we're just waiting for a light to be switched on the emergency signal. You're like, okay, cool, emergency signal, light, makes sense. And we're okay with it, we accept it. So the same applies in these kinds of conversations as well. Far from being condescending of like, do you really have to tell me why it's uh, inappropriate to talk over someone at a meeting? Like, we, we know what's wrong, but you're getting to their need of like, gosh, is that, is that really how I was showing up? And I guess if he wants to bring me in as a partner in this conversation, I, I need to know everything. I need to know where he's at. I need to know why Joe thinks that. And so it's actually quite welcoming when you know the reason why these conversations are happening, especially when they're framed in the context of, I'm having this conversation with you because I care. If I didn't care about your success, about our collective success, I wouldn't have it. You know, so when, my, when that friend had that conversation with me, you know, years and years ago, when I was at that crossroads in my work and life, and this individual really took me aside and asked me a simple question. He said, 
who do you want to be? <laughs> because the way you're showing up to other people is not who I know you are. But, but who do you want to be? Because it's, because it's, it's not translating. And, and that reason was so important, you know, for me to understand that. So you've given it an address, you've talked about what, you've talked about the reason why. And that's like most feedback conversations, Jackie, but the real magic with the RAP approach is in the last two parts, the A and the P, okay. affect and, and prompt. Because now you make really important shifts in the conversation. You see, most people will argue with what you say or could argue with what you say, but they have a much harder time arguing with how you feel. It's a truism of human nature. Right? People can argue with what we say, but they can't disagree with how we feel. Right? You may not like the color blue. I think blue is amazing, but you can't disagree with the fact that I feel like blue is an attractive color. Right? So we move feedback out of the realm of judgment and into the realm of emotion. And I don't mean therapy. I mean emotion in the sense of what, what were the emotional responses that were triggered by this action, specifically in, in the person who's giving the feedback, to move away from you statements and to make it about I statements, not you are lazy, you are mean, you are rude, but I felt uncomfortable when you said that. I was surprised that you were 10 minutes late today. I know that you're a much more caring person than what you just communicated. And it is a powerful, though, though very nuanced shift to move from judgment to affect, from I statements to, to uh, from you statements to I statements, because here's where we let the person know that it's not an attack. It is not us going to war with each other. This is not adversarial. This is about advocacy. This is about me wanting to help you. And for me to help you, I have to let you know how I'm feeling or how I see others are feeling in the course of, 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 of these actions that are, that are unfolding. And so in affect, I describe, hey, when you, when you talked over that person in the meeting, I felt bad for, for John, you know, cause John, I, I could, I could sense, you know, he, he was uncomfortable. He didn't want to like, he didn't want to challenge you, even though it was clearly awkward. Um, and I, and I felt bad that, you know, he had something he wanted to share and it wasn't able to get out to the team and for us to be successful in this, you know, remote environment that we're now finding ourselves in, it's so important to have free flowing exchange of information. And I felt like there was a, there was like a bottleneck there. There was a moment where that couldn't happen. That's a different conversation than me saying, I don't think you should be so curt with people. I think it comes across as rude. That's judgment. That's a you statement. You are rude, you are curt. But I statements are, 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 are housed in this affective category of, I, I felt bad. I, I felt um, surprised. I was wondering. Um, I'm curious. So that changes the whole nature. And then the last one is prompt, where we were talking before about being that window hold, um, that uh, mirror holder, where you start to 
listen more now to other people. So once you've told them what's happening, where it's happening and why it's important to have the conversation and how you felt. So now you say, okay, so, so Jackie, um, so what are your thoughts? Now, one of two things will happen. Either you will default to defiance, you'll push back, you'll challenge everything I said, because I've seen that happen. There are people who, regardless of how the information is packaged, will always resist and retreat. And that's human nature. And as, um, as a mentor of mine, Marshall Goldsmith says, uh, how do you change people who don't take feedback? You don't. Uh, so, so that's the unlikely scenario, though it is a scenario. And you don't do anything with those people. I mean, that's where you may have to be more of a force of change rather than provoke an insight, okay? But the more likely scenario is that after hearing it packaged this way, in a way that de-escalated the tension, that was very clear, that was candid, that was caring, and that was collaborative because we're inviting you, know, you in in the conversation, they'll say, my gosh, I'm, I feel terrible. I didn't realize that happened because again, 90% of us don't realize how we show up. And we'll, we'll say, well, I'm, I'm, I feel really bad. And I, I guess if that ever happened again, I would really self-check. You know, I'd really do, and you would maybe would list uh, a few simple tweaks. Like, you know, I would self-monitor. I'd, I'd wait 10 seconds before responding. Um, I would maybe let a couple people speak first before I chime in. There's a lot of things you might do. But the thing is, it would be your idea you would have come up with it. And that's the key. You now owned the process of change. You came up with the solution that anyways, might've been the thing that I told you, but because you came up with it, it's yours, not mine. And that is absolutely the difference between positive and lasting change and, and deep-seated resentments and chaos and confrontation and conflict at work. Now, that feels very empowering. Immediately when you said the prompt, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I wonder how many other people feel like this too. I better start to figure out how to change the behavior. So that, that's pretty powerful advice. So moving from something like a compliment sandwich to wrap, which is what happened and where did it happen? What was the reason for it? The affect, you know, using the... Okay, the, the, moving it from judgment to, to you know, oh, emotion. Right. You know, what, what emotions did it cause? What emotions did it cause? Mm -hmm. In me, the, the, yes. the speaker, yes. in me, the speaker, yeah. mm -hmm. because that can't be argued with, to the prompt. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this situation? How do you, what do you think it, it makes you feel when we talk about it? You know, and what do you suggest should happen next? Okay. Rather than me tell you and, and prescribe a change, I want to describe a situation and allow you to fill that space with a solution that best fits your needs, your style, your temperament, you. I love it. Okay, so what do you think should happen next for the prompt? I think that that's wonderful. So, you know, in sports, 
there are very measurable ways in which an athlete can determine the success or failure of coaching. You're telling me something about an individual situation. Does, does this work the same way a coaching relationship would work for an athlete? I mean, they're getting really pretty regular feedback mm -hmm. from the coach. Is it the same? Is it different? How does it work? And ultimately, they, they share a similar goal, and that is to help people become better. Um, whether you're coaching a leader or whether you're just asking a friend for advice on how to improve something, the goal is the same. It's to move from a point of frustration to a point of uh, either acceptance or a point of success. Uh, and depending on the situation and the need, that may be something that is going to require a lot of frequent contact, where okay. we're going to be talking about this often, weekly, maybe even every day, to something that only needs to be discussed on an as-needed basis. Um, if I'm working on my, my batting stance, I need to take a lot of reps before my stance improves. If I'm trying to improve um, you know, the velocity of my 40-yard uh, my my 40 yarder that takes a lot of coaching, but if it's something as simple as you know I I sometimes come across a little too abrasively. How can I work on that? Can you help me? That may not that may need a lifetime of practice uh, to reach a sense of of perfection or a real mastery, but it's not necessarily the kind of thing that needs frequent checking in. So when it comes to frequency, I always say right tool, right time, right. So it's it's a question of how uh, uh, it's not a question of how much no. it's really a question of how much value sure. uh, because you can do something a lot and it and it doesn't really add a lot of value right once you've actually like like when my kid was learning how to to write uh, cursive they actually were still teaching cursive so so they don't teach it anymore i hope i don't think so <laughs> i don't think anyone i mean this is my oldest so this was a law is about you know 10 plus years ago and so he he was learning cursive back in the day and so uh and so that took a lot of repetition that took a lot of contact there's yeah. it was a high frequency goal yeah. but if it was something as simple as like remember to wash your hands after using the bathroom that isn't a lot of coaching that's like a pretty simple routine it's a habit uh that, that's formed after just a couple of times so really think it depends on um, how much value it's adding. If I keep showing you how to wash your hands after using the bathroom, after you've mastered it, it's not really adding any value. But if you're still totally perfecting, if you're perfecting your, your, your cue in cursive, because that's a tricky one. So makes sense. Same thing in the workplace. Um, it needs to be the right, the right tool for the right time, the right amount of timing. Um, and ultimately, that's a decision that's agreed upon, I think, between both the the employee and the leader um, or the coach and the leader or whatever the situation may be. Um, but it, it comes down to what am I trying to achieve? What are the impediments that are in the way? Um, how will I know if, if I've reached success? And in order to do that, I think all those factors get mixed in and then it spits out a certain regiment of frequency. How often 
does this need to happen? How often should, would we be checking back on this to make sure that it's happening? Too much feedback is like too much sugar, right? A little bit of sugar is good, too much, not, right? Or carbs, same thing. Um, feedback can be high protein, it can be high fat. It just depends on how, depends on how we calibrate it. Um, and ultimately, I think it comes back to the receiver. You know, we talked before about what leaders can do. I think when, when feedback becomes something that is owned by individuals, not the people they work for, that is a recipe for success because they'll know when they need it because we know what we need, right? Well, yeah. no, we have that intuitive sense of I'm, I'm frustrated or I'm not doing something the way I want to be doing it or I feel like I could be doing something better and getting comfortable asking for feedback is how we know it's time for, for that. It's like taking too much, my kid, if I let my kid, this is not the one who was learning cursive. If, if I let my third child have his way, he would literally have a cough drop every single day of the year, maybe three. He, he always thinks he needs a cough drop. And, and I keep telling him, you know, you, don't, you only need it when you need it. So is your body telling you that you need one? And once my wife and I got him to think about, you know, cough drops in, in that sense, it actually reduced his need for cough drops. He's like, he liked it because it became something he just did as part of his morning routine. And so meanwhile, he's popping the halls every single day. You know, he loves his sepical lozenges. I'm like, I don't think you need this. And so now when his body tells him that his throat is very scratchy, he'll, he'll take one. And if feedback becomes like a cough drop that is taken as needed, when our body tells us that we need it, when we feel like that feedback radar is going off, we will have what we need. Not too much, not too little. All right, I think that that's a wonderful analogy. I guess I, I was hung up in my mind on, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and the 10,000 hours. And I'm, I'm actually reminded now that that's not for any person. 10,000 hours represents the very, very best. Mastery. The, right, master performers, mm -hmm. you know, so you know, the Michael Jordans of the world need to have, you know, constant coaching and interim goals that they're constantly working to, toward and mastering even the little skills at that level take a tremendous effort, right? I, it's, an, it's an excellent point. And yeah, it would distinguish between skills and, and interactions. Um, or things that we do and things that we do with others. So things that we do, skills, that takes a lot of practice. That takes a lot of repetition to get really good at it. But things that we do with others, um, interactions that we have with them, those are, again, that's, that goes back to what we said before about it's not how much, but how much value. And, and once we feel like there's a good rhythm to it, you know, there, maybe that's one of those things where you've, you've now grown. Like humans are constantly growing and we're never finished, we're never finished products. Right? We can always Thank goodness improve. for that. Yes. And, and I think part of what powers this conversation, this, this whole feedback approach, is that leaders realize that their 
is a lot they as leaders can't do. They are not finished products themselves. So they, they don't know everything and they can't solve everything themselves. And therefore they turn it back over to the employee. And for the employee, there's a recognition that I can't get better unless I have help. Help from my colleagues, help from my manager, and I'm blind to my blind spots, right? Famously, we're, we're, we don't see uh, the things that we can't even see. So we need others to help us along this journey. And that's why asking for feedback is so important and such a powerful shift in how we go about the process. Rather than waiting for it to arrive at our doorstep, we knock on the door whenever we think we need it. Yeah, so my next question, Joe, was who decides what success looks like? And it sounds like in this partnership relationship, the answer is you end up being the one that decides. You arrive at it. You're definitely getting a larger sh uh, share and stake in that process than you did before. And that's not to suggest that leaders are now lemmings, uh, that, they're just, that they're just there to sort of make sure the trains run on time. Um, real leadership is about awakening people to become their best, and that sometimes requires you to do some of the thinking with them, to be active with them in that process, and for you to have a vision of what success may look like for them, but to really come to a shared understanding of, of how your view of what success looks like and what their view of success or that experience of success has felt like yes. and bring those two together. That's why when you have these conversations and you always start with strengths and you say, well, tell me about when you felt like something was going great. And then you start to dig into that a little bit. You understand who was causing it and what was causing it and how you might scale that success again. You, you're taking your view and matching it with, with their emotions or their experiences. And that's how you come up with something that's shared and durable and enduring. Yeah. Because it no longer just belongs to me. It no longer just belongs to you. It belongs to us. And that's the definition of partnership, the work that we do together. It's so much more powerful than being told and berated. I, I, I love this. So. Let's keep with our analogy of sports. Um, or let's not. Let me, I'm going to skip over this question entirely. I think we've answered it. So um, I know most people hate change. It's the way we are. Is there a way that you can reframe what's happening that supports an open attitude toward it? So. We've answered some of that in part by yeah. talking about this idea of partnership, um, which I think is really, really wonderful. Um, what of the people that maybe aren't super defensive, but have a harder time identifying on their own? When they're prompted, they don't really, like I don't, I don't know what I could do. I didn't see myself that way in a situation. Um, how can you still use the methodology to reframe the way the person begins to develop the muscle of self-actualization or awareness? Mm -hmm. 
in their work interactions. So, yeah, because you, you, you're describing a situation where someone, despite everything being laid out in a caring, candid, collaborative way, still may appreciate that, but scratch his or her head and be like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know what I should do next. <laughs> so that's where leaders lean in a little more and they, and they can be a little more certain. And, and, but, not, but keeping with this idea of listening and learning and not telling and selling, you know, present it as, well, have you ever considered or have you ever wondered what would happen if? That's a little more of a leading question, yeah. but it sounds like in this kind of a situation, you, they need to be a little more led. And, and that doesn't mean you take them to the destination, it just means you show them where to look, not necessarily what oh. to see. So I love the way that you just said that. Can you provide me with another example of showing, showing the employee where to look? So, because that's yeah. fascinating. So a question like this, you say, okay, so I, I see you're a little stuck. Um, and I get that. What, well, what, again, try to understand why they're, why they're stuck. Well, can you tell me, you know, why do you feel like this is a challenge for you? you know, why is it challenging to come up with something? And now you're starting to direct their attention to whatever that problem is. And it'll give you a little bit of, of a better understanding of what's really holding them up. But more importantly, it's going to give them a much clearer view of what's blocking them, of what's in front of them right now. Okay, so I find that to be effective. And again, you're guiding, but you're not goading. And I think that's the difference. Um, you know, because otherwise it's just all masquerading as I'm telling you what to do, but I'm kind of phrasing it in nice language, but I'm still telling you what to do. So this whole thing is kind just of ruse. futile Which and smoke and mirrors. Like, you know, it really is about. Uh, guiding someone and not telling them and as much as possible just up to the point where you're actually handing it over to them like stop yourself that's why it's an art it's very difficult to do this well but it's an attempt that's worth making so you can practice it and it sounds like so so many of the reasons people struggle with it go back to that feeling of maybe a loss of control again or fear right and so we can go back to the earliest part of the conversation, which is about assuring the person that this is about looking forward and future success and not, you know, ruminating over, you know, all of the things you could have done differently, which you can't do differently now because the thing's already done, you know, and so let's look let's look towards the future. So you can kind of repeat those steps in other words. C.S. Lewis has, has a beautiful quote. I think it was C.S. Lewis. Um, and it really stuck with me. It's, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Yeah, I love it. And, and that's where this future focused feedback is so powerful because that's what awakens our joy. This sense that I can be better, that I can do better. And if I'm just given the chance and, and the right support, I can become a better version of myself. I can, I can inhibit this more productive state of being, this more productive state of work. 
and it just takes that bravery. And that's where we talked about before things that you know we can do for ourselves. It's asking for it, but it's also being brave enough to to hear sometimes the uncomfortable truths and yeah. to know that as long as it's coming from someone who truly cares about you, who has your interest, who has your back, that information will make you a better person because you can't fix what you can't see. Yeah. And if you don't see those things about yourselves, which was my situation, I, I couldn't see how I was showing up to others, I wasn't able to fix it. I didn't even know it needed to be fixed. But once it was pointed out, then I could make that change. I could start being the person that I wanted to become and thankfully have started to become. And as you said, you weren't alone in that group, Joe. 90% of us. We are all a little bit crooked, right? We're all trying to grow. We're all trying to get better. We're all trying to become our best selves. And it's hard hard work. And that's why it takes the support of caring, committed individuals in our work life, in our family life, in our communal life, to allow us to become more aware, to become more informed, and ultimately to become more successful. And with the right approach and with the right people, there is nothing that we as humans can't accomplish. I think it's amazing. You know, I was reminded uh, about um, Icarus and what we, you know, take away typically from that, you know, story is that, um, you know, pride, um, you know, this desire to have it all is what was the ending of Icarus, flying too close to the sun, right? But they rarely tell the other half of, you know, the, the mythical um, tale, which is that Icarus was also warned not to fly too low yeah. because his wings would be damaged by the salt in the sea and he would crash and drown. And there is equal danger in not taking risk and striving for things in life. And so this is a worthy thing to tackle and, and be good at and be proud of. Um, and I, so I, I'm in total awe that you have shared all of this amazing information with us because I think it really is going to help people's work lives be so much more enjoyable. But before I let you leave, I always wanna ask, you know, is there something that I forgot to ask of you that you think is really critically important that our listeners take away from this and or you just want to revisit one more time to make sure that the point is solidified in their minds? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I think we covered a lot of territory and you asked wonderful questions and this was a very wide ranging and I think uh, focused conversation. I think the thing that I would want to leave listeners with is that if you, if you try and you fail, then you, you know, may have missed an insight. But if you fail to try, then you've missed an opportunity. 
And this, this process is not going to come overnight. Uh, like any worthy human endeavor, it takes time, it takes patience. And don't be too hard on yourself, but also don't be too soft. Um, push to try to discover a better version of yourself. Push to try to help others discover a better version of themselves. And be humble and curious enough as you go forward. So great, Joe, so great. So I will include in our resources um, a link to your website, which has wonderful information about what you do and you know, your international speaking engagements, which will all take place via Zoom for a while. <laughs> Um, yeah, especially Estonia. It's not so easy to travel to Estonia these days. So. Oh my and I imagine you were scheduled to do just that. And yeah, yeah. Yep. So we're going to do it from my office. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, you can travel the speed of light nowadays. So it, hey, it's, it works. It works. And uh, I, we're all getting used to this new normal. But I think, and we were talking about this in, uh, before we got on for the show, there's so much good that has happened despite all the challenges that we face as a society today, that even when things return to quote unquote normal, I hope it never becomes normal to view people as widgets. I hope it's never normal to view feedback as a battle. I hope it's never normal to think of people as less of themselves rather than more of themselves. I hope we start making this approach more normal, because if we make it more normal, then people will be better, not worse for it. I couldn't agree more. And I assume that the feedback fix is available on Amazon and or yeah. on your website? Uh, yeah, Amazon is probably the easiest, um, but really anywhere books are sold. Um, and yeah, joehirsch.me is where you can go for really all kinds of great resources. I put everything out there really for free. I, I want people to have access to everything I do because I believe in this deeply. Um, so whether it's articles um, that I've written for Inc, HBR, or just my own blog or talk topics, anything that can be of value, I put it out there. I want everyone to have everything um, because I think the more we all get a little more comfortable with this approach, the better we'll all be for it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you again so much, Joe. Thanks, Jackie. We want to thank you for listening today. Visit ifmaboston.org slash podcast to see all of the show notes and any resources discussed in the episode. I'm your host, Jackie Falla, and this is FM Forward, where if you're an FM, buildings are assets, and it's your job to keep people happy or at least happily working. Until next time.